to you guys. You are the most generous church I have ever met. And I am thankful for the privilege of pastoring here. So thank you. Thank you for being part of that. We are in Matthew chapter 5, so if you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to open them with me, we're in Matthew chapter 5. Last week, I made the case, at least as best as I can, that Jesus wants you to be happy, that Jesus is for your happiness. Now, as, as soon as I say that, I know that there is pushback deep inside some of us that are going, I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. I disagree with that. That doesn't fit my experiences. I just, you just resist that idea that Jesus would want you to be happy. The, the only thing I can really say is, I preached that sermon last week and I can't preach it again this week. So um, the, the link to that is actually in the, in the notes of the YouTube video uh, this week. So if you want to go back and catch that, you can catch it on the YouTube video or you can catch it. We podcast the sermon, so you can find it on our podcast or you'll see it on the website. But, but I can't make that case again. The only thing I can say is, and this is something I said last week, part of what I said last week is, if you had kids, would you want them to be happy? And I think you all go, yeah. And, I, and then I, the next question I'd ask is, what do you mean by that? Do you mean sugar high happiness? Do you mean weekend bender happiness? Do you mean have an affair happiness? Like, what, what do you mean by, I want my kids to be happy? And I think, I think what you mean is, I want them, what I want for them is well-being. What I want for them is contentment. What I want for them is deep and lasting and eternal joy and purpose. Well, that's what I mean by happiness. And, and now, I, I mean, I'd ask you, like, do you think God, those of you who are really, I don't think God is for my happiness. I don't think he's for my joy. I don't think God, okay, listen, do you think God wants less for you than you want for your kids? I mean, this is in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you being evil, this is the doctrine of we all have, we're all sinners, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more does the Father know how to give good gifts to you? He is for your well-being. He really is. So you, that's where we have to start. Like, if you don't have that, you're not going to follow me through the rest of it. So if, if you're not going to follow me through the rest of it, maybe just hit pause and just kind of hear this. Just take some notes, and then you can catch it again after you listen to last week's sermon. But that's the best I can do, that Jesus is for your happiness. Okay? So here we are this week, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the idea of happiness comes from the idea of blessed. This is well-being. It is the sense of deep and lasting and eternal joy. Okay, so you see blessed there in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed. Verse 5, blessed. Verse 6, blessed. Verse 7, blessed. Verse 8, blessed. Verse 9, blessed. Verse 10, blessed. Verse 11, blessed. That's the idea here. 
Jesus is like he's opening a door and saying, hey, come on in. It's happy in here. You'll like it in here. And there are terms. And there is a process. And he outlines that in the Beatitudes. So we get a big map of the Beatitudes here. As Jesus is for your happiness, he's telling you how to be happy. When he says in chapter 4, verse 17, because we'll talk about mourning our sin in just a minute. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if I'm trying to draw a map of the Beatitudes, the map of the Beatitudes that I would draw would be a shape like repentance. So repentance is when, let's say, I am living for I am living a my-will-be-done life. I am doing what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. I'm living, I'm living a self-serving life. When I repent, I make that U-turn, and now I, make, I live a God-serving life. Now I'm living a your-will-be-done life, a your-kingdom-come life, and a hallowed-be-your-name life. That's a picture of repentance. It's like traveling in one direction, making a U-turn, and then going the other direction. So this is what the Beatitudes look like. They start with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They start with, first, you need to empty your hands of all your trophies, all your hang-ups, all your excuses, all your speculation about how good you could be if you really tried hard. First, empty your hands. First, come to God utterly spiritually bankrupt, saying, I have nothing. I only need you. Second, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this is mourn your sin. Because we'll talk about blessed are the pure in heart. Well, that has to do with moral purity. Because we'll talk about blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is a spiritual, uh, this is a spiritual discipline. So, we're talking about mourning your sin as the next step in repentance this week. A parallel passage to this, the idea of mourning your sin, is what Cheyenne read earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So the, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth is messed up. But can you think of a, a neighborhood, you know, like a, a church that's the that's the most insipid hot mess you've ever seen. Can you think of a church like that? It's just, just a hot mess, insipid, boiling, stinking mess. Corinth would, you know, like, they, you could see it from Corinth. Like it, and so Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, guys, you've got to repent. And it ticks them off. And Paul isn't sure he's ever going to see them again. He isn't sure they're going to repent. He isn't sure how it's going to go. And he's walking around. He can't even do the work of the ministry because he's so worried about what's going on in Corinth. Because he knows he grieves them. He knows, he knows their feelings are hurt. He knows they're mad at him. And he's not sure how it's going to go. Then he gets this message from Timothy that indeed they have repented. And so he says, I'm so glad. I know I grieved you, but it was a godly grief. Well, he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So we're going to talk about mourning your sin. This is a godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation without repentance. So 
godly grief produces something. Godly grief goes somewhere. Godly grief moves us in the right direction. So it's when you know, you know you're wrong and, you, and you're like, I will not do that again. I will not do that. And so you, we're going to move in the right direction now. We're going to repent. A godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So worldly grief just leads to terrible, awful depression. It leads, you know, the big, the, the most famous example of this um, is like Judas. When Judas betrays Christ, he gets convicted of this. He knows what he did is wrong. And so what does he do? He commits suicide. It's worldly grief that produces death. It didn't lead to repentance. It just led to death. Whereas godly grief would be an example of like Peter. He repented. He let that sorrow and that grief move him to repentance. So you can see how godly grief, seeing what we've done, Mourning it, grieving it, would move us to change. So here's what I want you to remember as we move into this, okay? Jesus is for your happiness. He is for your well-being in the same way that you're for, if you had kids, you'd be for your kids' well-being and happiness. Because he is for your well-being and happiness, he doesn't want you to stay how you are. He wants you to mourn your sins so that you can move into change. So how do we mourn our sin? Well, number one, we mourn our sin by being specific with which sin we're mourning. So it's really easy to hide in generalities when it, terms to when it comes to confessing sin. So if you say, well, everybody's a sinner, is that a confession? No, that's not a confession. If, if someone sins against you and you're like, bro, look what you did. And they're like, well, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Is that a confession? No, that is not a confession. That is hiding in generalizations. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody's a sinner. You know, I've got a past and I'm not proud of it. Is that a confession? No, that is not a confession. Everybody's got a past and everybody's got stuff they're not proud of. So what is, what is specifically naming a sin? Like if, if you're going to really mourn your sin, if you're really going to change, what it means is you're going to change a specific sin. You're going to mourn something specific. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will talk about lust. So it would be like, I gave myself over to looking at trash on the internet for an hour last week while I was traveling for work. That would be specific. Or, I said I would do it, and I didn't do it. That was a lie. That's specific. That's not hiding in generalizations. That's being specific. I gave myself over to worry for a day. I let myself get sucked into this worry, terrible loop. And I went around and around and around in worry. Jesus talks about all these things in the Sermon on the Mount. 
because I didn't trust God. Because all I could see was my problems and my needs. That would be specific. So if you're going to mourn your sin, start with being specific. Because here's the thing. You won't change what you won't name. You know this from talking with people that you love. When you sit with them and they keep saying big general things like I feel so bad or I feel this or I feel that or I feel the other, but they won't say exactly what's wrong and exactly what they're going to change, you know they're not ready to repent yet. So if you're going to change, you've got to say specifically what you're going to change. If you're going to mourn or confess your sin, you've got to mourn or confess specific sins. And until you do that, you're really not ready to change. You're really still hiding. So is the Holy Spirit pointing at any specific sins in your life? Not general, specific. If you're going to mourn your sin, start with specific. Second, make sure you're not blaming anyone, but taking responsibility for your sins. So if you're saying, look, I know I lost it last week, but I was traveling for work, and I was in Vegas, and you should see what Vegas is like. It's Horrible. Like the culture down there, like it could have done worse things. So, yeah, I lost it, but, but I was in Vegas, but this, but that, but the other. Do you think the person's ready to change if they're making excuses like that? No. Or, yeah, I said I would do it and I didn't do it, but I was really busy. But these things came up. But I had these problems. But my kids. But my parents. But my job. Do you think they're ready to change? Or do you think they're just going to make excuses next time something comes up? Yeah, I gave myself over to worry. But have you seen how much groceries cost? Yeah, I gave myself over to worry. But have you, seen, have you watched the news? Yeah, I gave myself over to worry, but have you seen what my kids or my parents or what my friends, have you seen? Do you think they're ready to change? No. So you can't take, so if you're going to mourn your sin, you must take responsibility for your sin by naming it rather than blaming other people for it. You're not ready to change until you'll name it. So when you say, I lusted last week, and that was sin, and it was my fault. Or you're willing to say, I lied last week, and it was sin, and it was my fault, and I shouldn't have made that commitment that I couldn't keep. Or you say, I gave myself over to worry last week, and it was wrong, and I shouldn't, and I should have prayed, and I should have asked for help, and I... You won't change until you own it. You aren't mourning what you are excusing. 
If you keep making excuses, you cannot change. How often do you sit and talk with people that do this? How often do you sit and talk with people that make excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse? And it is so frustrating because you know that you cannot help them while they're making excuses. Number one, you're going to mourn your sin. Don't mourn all sins in general everywhere. Mourn a specific sin. Number two, name it sin. Take responsibility for it. It's not, it's sin. Call it sin. Say what's wrong, own it. Number three, number three, because I think, there, I think there are times when we know we have sin in our lives, but the bottom line is we don't hate it. The bottom line is we still kind of like it and still kind of run to it and still pursue it and never really change and never really repent. Even though, even though we know it's sin and we know it's our fault, but you know what? It's so convenient. It's so... It helps us escape from reality so much, right? Number three, if you want to hate it, if you want to hate it, if you really want to change, if you really want to mourn it, number three, count the real cost of that sin rather than remaining willfully blind to its consequences. So let me give you an example. Okay, so... I own a, a smaller to mid-size SUV, and um, let's say that I get really discontent and unhappy with my Toyota Highlander, and so I decide what I really need is a brand new Suburban. And so I go out and I buy a brand new Suburban. Now, there's going to be an initial cost to that brand new Suburban, isn't there? You can shake your head. This is not a trick question. Yes, there is going to be an initial cost. There is going to be a big initial cost to this brand new Suburban. But that's not the real cost. That's not the total cost. What else is it going to cost? Well, when I, after I purchase it, I'm going to have to pay taxes on it. Those taxes are going to be a lot more than I pay on my old... I mean, I'm not complaining. I, I like my car. But it, it, taxes are going to be a lot more. And I'm going to call my insurance agent and say, hey, I just bought a new, a new truck. A new what? Well, a new, you know, whatever it is, a huge SUV. And they're going to say, oh, well, insurance is going to be different now. You have teenage drivers. Oh, good. We love teenage drivers here. There's going to be maintenance costs. It's, it's different to change the oil in a V8 than it is a V6. It's different to buy tires on a bigger vehicle than it is to buy tires for a smaller vehicle. Like, there's, there's a lot of costs that are there that I don't even think about when I'm thinking about buying the, buying the new truck. It's just like that with sin. Like, there's the initial cost of that sin. But then there's all the other things around it that you don't even think about. Like the line to cover it up.
like that tightness in your chest that comes with guilt. Like that low-grade anger that comes with fear, you're going to be found out. Like the twisting of your soul that comes from sinning on purpose again and again and again. Like the destruction that happens in other people's lives when we sin. Like how we treat other people when we're in sin. Like how it grieves the heart of God when we sin. There's all the other costs that we don't, we just, we just are willfully blind to. God, through his Holy Spirit, is he, is he kind of doing this to you right now? Going, hey, there's, there's a bigger price and you're willing to acknowledge. And it's sin. Stop making excuses. It's sin. And say what it is specifically. Stop hiding from it. Is God doing that to you right now? He did that to me while I was working on this. And so... You know, I was working out all week. I start on Monday. My day off is Friday. I managed to avoid actually dealing with the stuff that I need to deal with until Friday on my day off. And I finally said, okay, there's no more excuses. I can't blame busyness anymore. I can't blame sermon prep. I can't blame this. I can't blame that. I can't blame the other. It's Friday morning. Everyone else is asleep. It's time to deal with my stuff, not just help them deal with their stuff. And I can't tell you, I can't, I can't tell you how hard it was to concentrate. I am a morning person. It is early in the morning. And I wanted to be on my phone so bad. Like every time I'd say, okay, say it specifically. Oh, oh, put your phone down, Nate. <laughs> Call it sin. Put your phone down, Nate. Write the real cut. Put your phone down. I had, I had to turn my phone off because my flesh doesn't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with it. It's hard. It hurts. It's humiliating. I don't think I'm the only one. And, and our phones, like this requires unphoned time. You can't do this on your phone. Counting the real cost is important because you aren't mourning what you're minimizing. And our, our desire is to minimize so we don't have to face it. Facing it makes it really hard to minimize it. Makes it really hard to keep putting it off. And our propensity is, just, is denial by distraction. Denial by distraction. Here's what, here's what we got to come back to. This is where we started. This is where we come back to. Because I, I just think you need to hear this. I need to hear this. Jesus is for your happiness. And I know it feels like well, why would he be for my happiness if he wants me to mourn my sin? Because he knows you need to change. 
Change is the only way to be truly happy. You, you're not going to stay happy feeding your flesh. It's kind of like, like with a little kid. Uh, you know that they need to make changes in order to be happy. Kind of like they have, to, they have to learn how to go on the potty. They don't want to go on the potty. They want to stay right where they are. They are happy not going on the potty. They will resist you and fight you. They don't want to, they don't want to learn how to go on the potty. But you know for your long-term good, in order to be happy, you have to go on the potty. I know you're like, dude, that's such a weird example. <laughs> I don't know why I thought of it. Maybe I... I'm just trying to, I'm trying to meet you here and go, look, God is so much bigger than us. He knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is not for us to stay just how we are. And part of the change process is mourning your sin. Part of the change process is saying, this is exactly what is wrong and this is what needs to change. And if you won't say that, you're not ready to change. Think of how these two steps. So remember the first step is being poor in spirit. The first step is emptying your hands and saying, I have nothing to bring to God that is of any worth. I am coming empty-handed. And, and the next step is, of course, mourning your sin. Th those of you who are familiar with Dave Ramsey's baby steps, is there anybody here familiar with Dave Ramsey? Yeah. So Dave Ramsey does a course called Financial Peace University where he teaches um, how to get to financial freedom. And so he has what he, what he calls baby steps. And the first, the first baby step is save up $1,000 for an emergency fund. It might be more than that now, but back when I took it, it was save up $1,000 for an emergency fund. That's the first step. Second step was pay off your debts, um, smallest, to largest, so you get momentum going with a debt snowball. Think of how different, think of how different Dave Ramsey's steps are from Jesus's. Now, I'm for Dave Ramsey. I mean, I like the process. Shannon and I benefited a great deal from financial peace for it. But think of how different this is. Jesus says, here's the first step. Declare spiritual bankruptcy. Don't even try to bring anything to God. Dave Ramsey says, save up $1,000. Do you see the difference there? Jesus says, own your sin. Mourn it. Grieve it. Dave Ramsey says, pay it off. Pay off all your debts. Jesus says, you can't pay it off. Do you see the difference? The gospel is unlike anything else. At the one time, at the one hand, the gospel declares spiritual bankruptcy, mourn your sin. At, on the one hand, that is the easiest thing in the whole world. Just say you don't have anything. Just mourn what you've done wrong. And on the other hand, that is the hardest thing in the whole world because it crushes your pride. 
So Jesus is for your happiness. Because he's for your happiness, he invites you, he pleads with you, he instructs you, commands you to mourn your sin. Do this because he will comfort you. He will comfort you. That is the promise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So those of you who hear this and hear about specific sins and your head goes right to it, your heart goes right to it, call them sins, take responsibility for it, your heart goes right to it, goes, yes, I am a sinner, and see the real cost, and you're going, yes, I played that out over and over and over and over and over, and I hate it, and I, it's just crushing, and I'm itchy with guilt. Just know that he promised that those of us that confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sins and be forgiven. There's comfort in just confession. There's comfort when we're no longer hiding and we're telling Jesus the truth that I sinned, I'm a sinner. If you're itchy with guilt, come to the cross and be clean. There's comfort in that. If you're going, I, I feel so unworthy, I feel like I shouldn't even be here, I feel so out of place, I feel so convicted, you're perfect. This is exactly where you should be. Go to Jesus and be forgiven. There's comfort. There's comfort for those of us who are itchy with guilt. There's comfort for those of us who are just weary of our weakness. Weary of our weakness. So, so those of us who are tired of being tempted, tired of the constant, incessant temptation, tired of our failures, there's comfort for us because we know that after Jesus died, he rose again and then he promised that he would come back and make all things right. So there will be an end to our sadness. There will be an end to our sorrow. There will be an end to our sin and our temptation. There will be an end. And so take comfort in the idea that this is not it. That Jesus is going to come back and make all things right and new and good and whole. Take comfort in that. So, Jesus comforts those who are itchy with guilt. He comforts those who are weary because of their weakness. And he comforts those who are like, you know, I just don't feel any of that. Does that what does that mean for me? I'm just here and I just don't know. I mean, it's just none of it. I just don't know. Like, am I, am I in? Am I out? I just don't know. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a preacher from of old, and he said this to his folks that were like having a lot of self-doubt because of their lack of feelings, and he said, repentance is not something that you work up and bring to God. He said, learn this lesson, not to trust Christ because you repent, but to trust Christ to make you repent. Think about that. It's, that, that's what goes back to poor in spirit. Just empty your hands and go to Jesus. Don't like, well, I gotta, gotta get my thousand dollar emergency fund, gotta work up enough repentance so I can go to Jesus. No, that's not it. Empty your hands and go to Jesus bankrupt 
and he'll give you the repentance that he wants you to have. But go to Jesus. Not to come to Christ because you have a broken heart, but to come to him that he may give you a broken heart. So if you're like, I don't even, I don't feel bad enough about myself. I can't go to Jesus yet. Go to Jesus. If he wants you to feel bad, believe me, he can. He'll help you. Not to come to him because you are fit to come, but to come to him because you are unfit to come. So many people wait to come to Jesus until they have their stuff together. When that is exactly wrong, you should come to Jesus because you don't have your stuff together. Your fitness is your unfitness. Your qualification is your lack of qualification. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, if you're just not sure. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples did what disciples always do. They came to him. Wherever you are, wherever you've been, come to Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would give us that faith that we need to come to you. Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves and come to you. That we would get over our lack of integrity, that we get over our sin, that we get over our pride, that we get over our flesh, and that we would, we would come to you, and that you would comfort us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.